let's get into uh, God's Word this morning. Uh, we're going to be in, uh, no surprises here, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, we'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, or if you know someone you want to give it away to, please, by all means, do that. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. Um, some pretty amazing stuff. I, I trust that God will bring out uh, from this text for us this morning. You all there? You ready? Okay. Read, pray, and then we'll uh, dive in. This is Jesus talking to his disciples here. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, well, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Uh, let's pray. God, I may not be in the midst of persecution here this morning. I may be even in a gathering among friends, family in Christ. But nonetheless, I need the things that you're talking about, the things that you're promising here in our text. Namely, I, I need you to come and by your spirit, give me words. And by your spirit, speak. Week after week, I'm always aware of my own insufficiencies and weaknesses. Though I gather that I still don't even hardly see them for what they are. Um, yet still, God, I know I, I can't accomplish anything in this room here this morning. You have to show up. And so we are begging you collectively not just go and speak to this person over there or that person over here, but come and open our own eyes. Come and open our own hearts. But we are prone to wander and we feel it. And sometimes we don't know how to fix it. And like good Westerners, good Americans, we like to have a strategy, a plan, and we don't always... <laughs> It won't work. What we need is your spirit to come. There's something intangible. Something out of our control. Something that comes to us from you by your grace. Sovereign grace. And so we're praying for that here this morning. We're praying for a move of your spirit in our midst. And for you to do things we couldn't have even imagined on the front end of this service. In Jesus' name. Ask these things. Amen. Um, so it may be evident, it, it may 
not be uh, upon first read of this text. But it seems to me that beneath the challenging, uh, at times confusing, if you were looking closely, even perhaps troubling words of Jesus in our text here this morning, it seems to me there's a pronounced emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. Um, that in the midst of these troubling words about denying him and unforgivable sins and all this sort of stuff, persecution coming at us, being thrown, you know, uh, to, the, uh, to the kings of this world to be judged and, and, and torn down or whatever it may be. It seems that Jesus is actually directing us at times implicitly, at other times explicitly to the helper to the one who can get us through, to really, after Jesus has died and risen, to himself as he will come to his people by his spirit and live out again his life in and through us. So the Holy Spirit, I think, is featuring large in our text, and that's why I'm going to order uh, my thoughts kind of around this idea Um, Three things we're going to look at. One, requiring the Holy Spirit, verses 8 and 9. Two, receiving the Holy Spirit, verse 10. And then uh, third and finally, resting in the Holy Spirit, verses 11 and 12. And as is uh, somewhat typical of me, uh, point number one is going to be the longest. And uh, then we'll make our way to two and three uh, near the end. So let's let's dive in there, and I think as I make my way through, you'll start to see what I'm talking about. First, requiring the Holy Spirit in verses 8 and 9. Read those uh, verses again with me here. It says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, I'm going to just kind of sit on some of this for a while before I really show you how the Holy Spirit's involved in this. But I just want to think about this for a moment, because if we truly heard Jesus' words there, uh, my sense is that a a shudder of fear maybe might move across us a bit. I mean, these are not... uh, These are not the softest, tenderest words that you would want to kind of hear, you know, when you're struggling with this or that. Come in and, Jesus, give me something nice to hear. He says, okay, you acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you. You deny me, I'll deny you. You go, wow, that sounds kind of frightening. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about uh, like what the author of Hebrews uh, says in Hebrews 9:27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This idea of standing before God. You know, we live in a culture, uh, largely these days, secular, uh, atheistic, even, where you know people might believe that, hey, after we die, we just kind of dissolve into the dust. Or, you know, there are other spiritual uh, religions and faiths and things like that, like Buddhism, for example, that would say, ah, after you die, you're going to kind of keep going around in reincarnation kind of circles until perhaps you advance. Um, But what Jesus is saying here, what the author of Hebrews says is, 
It's appointed for man to die once and then you stand before a holy God to give an account for your life. And our text is saying what you do with Jesus here and now determines what he will do with you there and then. Now, the final judgment is kind of the context here. Now, let me bring out uh, what is perhaps maybe a surprising observation for those of you that have been trekking with us in the Gospel of Luke up to this point. Um, you maybe notice a different emphasis that Jesus is placing here than he's placed previously. Uh, I'll catch those of you that haven't been with us up to speed here uh, right now. We need to remember that for so many verses in what's come before, Jesus has been engaged in conflict, right? He's, he's been engaged in kind of back and forth uh, dialogue, even kind of argumentation with the religious leaders of uh, the day there in Israel, the Pharisees or the lawyers. And what's been his primary point of conflict? His whole thing has been about the danger, actually, of public religion of a religion that is merely public, that, like we've been talking about, presents one thing on the outside for everyone to see that's nice and, and clean and godlike and all this stuff, and then inside there's a different story playing out. Remember, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This public religion, this public display of look at how much I gave, look at how eloquent my prayers are, look at how long my robes are, look at how good my hair is, or whatever. How many Bible verses I know. But inside, it's all about me, right? So up to this point, he's been saying, listen, watch out for public religion. Watch out for the public square and bringing all this stuff out there. Rather, I want to see, my father wants to see who you are in private, who you are in the closet, who you are when no one else is looking. Do you even care about God then? Well, if no one's looking, I'm not going to serve. No one's patting me on the back. I'm not going to study the Bible. I just do that to get X, Y, and Z for myself. So he's been warning. He's been... He's been confronting that idea, and then here we come in verse 8 of chapter 12, and he seems to be saying just the opposite, if you read carefully. He, he, he seems to be saying, oh, now wait a minute. Your religion better be public. It better be evident to all. You better bring that thing out of the closet and into the public square, because if you don't, I'm not sure you have reason to think it's real at all. The whole matter turns, it seems to me, on what you were doing before men. Did you catch that? You acknowledge me in what way? Before men. In public. I'll acknowledge you. You deny me before men. I'll deny you on that day. There's something public that needs to uh, kind of make an appearance about our faith about our relationship with Jesus. And so, I mean, even just the question right now for you to consider, is your faith in Christ playing out before men? Or is it something that you kind of like to keep private? You kind of like a good American secular, you know, plur in a pluralistic society, uh, you kind of like to keep it in the closet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a Christian, sure, but 
no one else really needs to know that. I don't want to bring up my religion and kind of stir the pot in the workplace. And everybody knows that just doesn't go well. Those few things you don't talk about, religion, politics. We're not going to do that. I'm going to be a good pluralist and be a good American. Jesus is saying, brother, sister, watch out. Watch out for that attitude that would privatize merely. Keep it there. Your faith, your relationship with me. Because what you do with me before men will actually determine what happens to you on that day. So then we're left uh, scratching our heads at this point, asking the question, okay, Jesus, which is it? Is it, is it, is it private, personal, closet relationship with God? Meaningful inside, or is it public, you know, pronounced, everyone can see, unashamed on the outside? And you know the answers. Yes. Both. And he starts by calling for one's faith to be private because that's where it begins. Christianity, before it is anything else, is a matter of the heart. It's regeneration. It's being born again, which is something that takes place inside a man. The very nature of a person renewed. But what Jesus is saying is, if that has happened, if that is taking place, if the Spirit is at work in your life, If you have been transformed, if you have truly encountered the risen Christ, you will not be able to put it under a basket or keep it hidden. It will come out. It will break out. You will not be able to partition it to some safe little spot over here. Instead, what you will see is it will start to break out into every sphere of your life. You will be acknowledging Jesus as as Savior, Lord, treasure in every sphere of your life. To be a Christian is not just to add an event to your schedule on Sunday mornings. It's to have everything you do radically reoriented by God's gospel and grace. Which means... You don't work the same. When you meet Jesus, you don't work the same. When you meet Jesus, you don't play the same. You don't rest the same. You don't talk the same. Nothing about you is the same. Everything is changed by His grace. And in everything, there is a willingness and an openness, a readiness to acknowledge Him. The hope that's in you, the power that's transformed you. I thought of Colossians 3.17 here where Paul says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It cannot be privatized. It cannot be partitioned. It cannot be, you know, something you have over here. It is in everything you do. Word, deed. Just wrap that up. And say, it's all going to be an acknowledgement. Jesus. It's all going to be done with a thankful heart to him. It's all going to be done in his name. That's radical. That's amazing. The private breaks out into the public square. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here. But now we have yet another question to ask ourselves, and that is, if our relationship with Jesus is supposed to move from the heart and from this place of regeneration outward to where we openly profess and acknowledge him as our Savior, Lord, treasure, why do we so often not? Why do we so often hide? Why do we so often censor and edit ourselves and offer up a different dialect depending on who we're talking to? More like amoebas than ambassadors where we kind of fit the context. Oh, I'm in church. The hand's raised, baby. Woo, praise Jesus. I'm at work. Jesus who? You know what I'm saying? More like amoebas than ambassadors. No external framework, no structure, no spine. Why? Why, why is that the case? Uh, don't think for a moment that this is Nick on his soapbox preaching to you, you people down there. This is me talking to me. Why? Well, the answer, I'll give it to you up front, but we'll meditate on it for a moment, is really simple and it. It's right in the context of our text as well for, the mor- for this morning where you know Jesus is talking about the fact that when you follow me, people aren't going to like you. That's the bottom line. People don't like to talk about sin. They don't like to talk about the day of judgment or a God of wrath. Or, God forbid you say the four-letter word, hell. Oh, they experience life in a fallen world. They experience the effects of sin. They're just not willing to look to Jesus for the solution because with Jesus comes all this other baggage called dealing with my sin, repentance, saying that I'm not all that, I can't figure it out, I need help from outside, I need a Savior or I'm going to hell. I don't like that. Some of you in this room might not even like that. Even followers of Jesus might go, mm, oh, did he just say that? Nick, calm down. They're going to hear you out in the neighborhood. <laughs> People don't like it. And they won't like us. And that's been what we've been seeing in uh, in the narrative there in Luke, right? Is Jesus is, 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 is now engaging in this conflict with these religious leaders. And now he turns chapter 12 to his disciples to say, listen, guys, this ain't gonna, it's not just going to be me in the crosshairs. Like you're behind me. You're there, too. You're following me. They're going to hate you, too. You make a friend of me. You make an enemy of them. That's why we so often want to kind of pull this thing away. We might have our, our you know, civilized and, and sophisticated reasons that we tell ourselves. But bottom line is we're scared people like, like little junior hires. We're scared people won't like us if we tell them. Or as we'll see, there is a lot more that can happen when you follow him. But here in uh, America, we... We like to talk about Christianity and Christians, for that matter, as kind of being under fire, right? We, we, if you kind of catch the narrative, you, you see it that, oh, we've lost our cultural swagger. 
or our, our, our prominence. Uh, evangelicals are, are losing the day or whatever, and we're, we're no longer um, uh, moving forward in the culture and, and big-time movers and shakers. No, instead, we're kind, of, we're kind of falling into the margins. We're losing relevance. And um, yes, we can bemoan that fact for sure uh, in some ways. But the fact of the matter is that we actually know very little of the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about here. This idea of really being under fire. Like he's not talking here about a few news anchors making fun of our beliefs. Or he's not talking about a, a, a spiritual post that you put to your Facebook feed that a friend hits that little angry face. You know, and doesn't like it, and you feel offended. He's not talking about uh, uh, the fact that some of your coworkers don't want to go to lunch with you because you're a Christian, you follow Jesus. Those things hurt. Those things are hard, absolutely. And they're cut from the same cloth as this bigger idea of, of, of persecution unto death. But he's talking about something a lot more here. He's preparing these disciples for guys who will want to come into their house, break down the door in the middle of the night, kill them because they follow him. So that's why Jesus says what he does back up there in verse 4, if you remember. He says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. Jesus is not just saying that for dramatic effect. He's not just trying to kind of use hyperbole to get these guys to, to, to get his point and take him seriously. He's saying it because these guys are going to kill you. They're going to come after you. I mean, that's the point, right, of verses 11 and 12. They're going to drag you before the authorities and try to falsely accuse and condemn and kill you. We're not playing games. It's for real. It's an impending reality for his audience here. Like he would later tell Peter, I don't you remember that scene when um, Jesus... He's raised from the dead and he's restoring Peter after Peter denies him and things. And he's, he's preparing him for ministry. And, and, and uh, you would think it would be this nice encouraging moment. And it otherwise would have been. And then all of a sudden Jesus goes, oh, yeah, and one more thing. Pretty soon people are going to tie you up. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. And they're going to kill you. And that's how you're going to glorify me. Now come on and follow me. Like, you want to get behind Jesus at that point? You're going, yes! Awesome, thanks! You're saying, seriously? And that's what Peter really kind of does. He goes, what about John? Is anybody going to die with me? This sounds horrible. Or you might think of what happens later with Paul, right? Jesus shows up to Paul and says, i got to show, I got to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name. It's not going to be easy to follow. And Paul catches wind of that by the Holy Spirit, Acts 20, 22 through 24. He says this to the Ephesian elders there. He says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. You signing up to follow Jesus into that? But then he goes on, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, or in the words of our text, to acknowledge him before men. 
to talk about his grace. You say, man, why don't they want to know about grace? Well, because the baggage is the underbelly of the gospel is the wrath and, and, and sin that you deserve, Jesus takes. That's how you get the grace. You've got to talk about that, and they stone you for that. They throw you in jail for that. They lop off your head for that. So Jesus is preparing them to die. Acknowledging him before men. It can't be that your faith is this little secret thing that you do in a private way saying you've got to make a decision. You can't kind of eat your cake or what is the phrase? Eat your cake and save it too or something like that. You want, you want me and you want the friends with the world. You can't have it. You can't. If you're going to truly follow me, they will hate you like they've hated I um, was recently listening to a sermon by a, a pastor, and he was talking about his trips to um, kind of visit the underground church in China and then the church in India, uh, certain parts of it. I don't, he didn't say where he was. And uh, when he was in India, he was talking to the pastor there, and he had noticed that the church and the Christians uh, were all just sold out for Jesus in profound ways, l- laying their lives down for uh, their faith. And he looks at this pastor, because this guy's from, uh, you know, America, and here he is with, in, in India, and he's going, so where are the casual ones? Where are the the Christians that are, you know, they show up on Sundays for an hour or so, and it's convenient but then they go home and they do their Monday to Friday 9 to 5 without a thought about anything else where are the the casual ones and this pastor there in India said we don't have any of those it would be utterly foolish for some of these guys to make a decision to follow if they decide to follow Christ they lose everything you don't just kind of casually kind of stumble into that decision. You, you, you put things in the balance in that moment. And you say, okay, the life I have and all the pleasure that I can get from this world or Christ. And these men saw more value in Christ. And so they let go of this stuff. They lost it all. That's what's going on with these Christians here. They lost it all. They're not going to go all in for Jesus and then be casual. He becomes their life. He is all that they have. And this is the sort of context Jesus is speaking into here. We need to learn from it as well because it really is the call of every disciple, whether persecution in that uh, uh, um, extreme is kind of upon us or not. The reality is, is that to be a disciple, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, what? Take up your cross and follow me. Discipleship begins with that. Okay, it's in the balance. Am I willing to let it all go? Am I willing to, to just lay down my life? It's, it's, it's dying with Christ to rise with him into newness of life. That's what being a Christian, it can't even start if you don't make that exchange and that decision. 
It's not as if, if you're a Christian in India or other parts of the world, it's take up your cross and follow me. But if you're a Christian here in America, it's kind of like take up your easy chair and follow me. And when you want, when it's convenient, get off your chair and we'll do something cool for the kingdom. It's take up your cross. It's let's get real. It's let's be serious. It's prepare to be bold enough to lose your job, lose your, whatever it means, for the, for the sake of love, God, neighbor, because he has loved you first. Acknowledging him in every sphere before men. So if we are not willing to go public or if we are, even as I'm talking about this, we're getting a little bit uneasy and we're thinking, man, this is this is doing exactly what I didn't want you. You're stirring the pot by talking about these sorts of things. And if we're finding that maybe we are more like amoebas than ambassadors and all these things, then we need to have, we need to make room to pause and consider. Take Jesus' words here at the beginning of our text seriously. Am I acknowledging him? If not, why not? Now, Jesus, and I want to make some things clear before I, I move us forward. Um, when Jesus talks about denial here, he is not, he is not talking about momentary lapses of faith due to fear and the struggles that we all face. Anybody afraid of man? Anybody deal with kind of lapses of faith? Anybody stumble over their words or, or, or cower away from an opportunity to talk about Jesus? Gosh, this is my job to talk about Jesus, and that happens to me all the time. I don't think that Jesus is talking about that when he's saying, if you deny me, I will deny you. I think he's talking about a settled position of public rejection. A settled position of, of public rejection. Undoubtedly, every true Christian comes to these places of fear, temptation to deny or, or, or temptation to, to hide all the time. We are not always uh, trumpeting with Paul in Romans 1, 16, that I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for any who would believe. Therefore, I acknowledge him in every sphere at all times, unashamed. Let me tell you something. Sometimes I'm ashamed. Sometimes I'm worried about what people are going to say. You know what? If you read your, your Bible carefully, you realize even Paul, the guy who wrote this text, would be tempted towards such a thing. That's why we have uh, texts like we do in Ephesians 6, where Paul's writing to the Ephesians church. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, he kind of closes out his letter like this. Pray at all times in the spirit. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Catch this. And also for me. That words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You hear that? You know what he's doing? I love this. You gotta love this about Paul. He's not in an, he's not otherworldly in the sense that he's like on another plane as a Christian. He says, pray for all the saints and don't think I'm in a different category. I'm one of them. I need prayer. 
And what do I want you to pray for? Man, I get scared. I'm writing you this from prison. This is hard. I'm tempted to, to turn away and, and, and deny or whatever it may be. Pray that I have boldness. Pray that I'll be given words. Pray that the Spirit will grant me the ability to acknowledge and keep on acknowledging as I ought to. I'm bringing Jesus and the gospel to everyone that I meet. Am I scared? Sure. But I'm not willing to let that settle in and become kind of my natural disposition. I'm going to push against it, pray against it, fight against it. Ask God for help. Give me words. Give me boldness. So I was thinking about some of this. I was um, wondering if you know why we have things like home groups at this church. I wonder if I were to ask, why, you know, why would a church have home groups? I wonder what people would say. Why do we do the small group thing where we kind of gather midweek and all this sort of stuff? Why, why do that? I will tell you one thing. It is not so that we could just kind of have a little slap happy fun fellowship time and, and, and uh, where we all feel uh, known and loved and then we go home. We hang out with our favorite people and then we peace out. Now, to be clear, if you've been around this church long enough, you know that community is one of our core values. That absolutely do we want you to know and love one another and be known and loved in community in, in, in very intimate and, and deep and, and meaningful ways. Yes. But if that's all that we're doing when we come together in our small groups and things, or even on a Sunday, if that's all that we're doing, then we have radically missed it. We as a church have been given the Spirit and set on a mission. And so when we gather together, not only are we just enjoying good fellowship and conversation around a table, maybe good Bible study here or there, whatever it is, we are also getting on our faces together and saying, God, we are scared. It is hard to acknowledge you in the workplace, in the neighborhood, you name it, in the grocery store. It is hard to live for you. I'm not living like hell is a reality. I'm not living like heaven is coming soon. I'm not living like the cross is on my back and, 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 I, and I've, I've said yes to Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. I'm not living like that. Instead, I'm scared. Holy Spirit, help. Church, home group, pray for me. I want to be all that God has called me to be. That's a significant portion or reason why we gather in these groups. If not that, God forgive us. This is precisely what the early church did when it would gather. Precisely. Acts 4 in particular, we know that the church was just um, in its infancy. And already, just like Jesus said, man, the religious leaders, the authorities were on them. And they're scared. Just like you and I would be. Just people. Just people, just like you and I. Scared. I don't want to open up my mouth. I don't want to follow Jesus if this is what it means. I want to hide away. But here's what we read. Acts 4, 29 through 31. Instead, they come together and they pray. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The very same thing that Paul is going, pray for me that I'd speak the word with boldness. The early church is gathering to do that as well. That's what the church is supposed to. We are set on mission. We've been given God's missionary spirit. It's not just so we can have a private little experience in a room somewhere where we have tears in our eyes listening to good Christian music. Absolutely. Is that wonderful? Yes. But that needs to make its way out into the public square. And I'll have the verse to say it's scary to get there. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus doesn't expect us to have the ability to do this. He knows that it's scary. He knows that it's hard. He knows that we're prone to fear and to doubt and to tremble before, uh, you know, our, our opponents. He knows that we need the Spirit if we're going to acknowledge Him. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says as much. This shouldn't surprise us. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, how are you going to acknowledge Him as the Lord? Before men or anywhere, by the Spirit. This is why in the book of Acts, he says, don't you start this, this missionary uh, uh, um, expedition, if you will, until I send the Spirit. I don't expect you to have the boldness and the power. I don't expect you to be able to acknowledge me in front of these horrible threats. But I will send my spirit to help you. So the reality is, is this. He's not thinking that you're going to somehow stir this up in and of yourself. Instead, what he is going to do is, is he's going to send his own spirit. The spirit of the one who did stand up for his father, even when all the world stood against him. Calvary, the cross. He says, listen, I'm going to send that same spirit. I'm going to, send, I'm going to come in. And give you what you need to walk that life out here in public as well. So if I were to say what our problem often is in the matter here at hand. It is not that we're afraid. It is not that we sometimes cower and are scared. It is not like, ah, I'm a subpar Christian because I have fear of man and other things. Jesus knows you're afraid. Paul was afraid. The disciples were afraid. The church was afraid. Everybody's afraid. It's scary. But our big problem, our, our, the, 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 the thing that we are guilty of is we've kind of normalized that fear. We stop pounding on heaven's door saying, give us the spirit like Acts 4 early church. We don't want this to just be the norm for us. We don't want it to be a settled disposition of, yeah, it's kind of just something that I do in private and I don't bring it up in public. We go, no, God, it cannot be this way. We are ambassadors. We are missionaries. I can't do it. Help me. And we keep knocking. We keep asking. We keep calling down from heaven, from Jesus, the power that we need. So, so the problem isn't that we have fear. The problem is that we receive that fear as normal and kind of go on with life. Instead of pushing against it like Paul or the early church or Jesus in Gethsemane.
What is he doing there? I am scared. God, help. Okay. Now, that's the idea of requiring the Spirit. We require the Spirit if we're going to acknowledge Him before men. Now, secondly, Jesus gets more explicit about the need for receiving the Spirit as we move to verse 10. Um, we read this. Uh, these words admittedly are a bit enigmatic. They've long been debated. I don't have time to go into all of that. I'm going to hopefully shoot through some of the fog, although I'm, I might add to it. I don't know. We'll see. But look at his, look at his words there in verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. If you actually read that, you're confused, no doubt. You can't go, wait, okay, so if I, if I say something bad about Jesus, I'm all right. But if I say something bad about the Spirit, it's over for me. That doesn't make any sense. The thought that occurred to me is like, one way to read this might be, okay, Jesus, the Spirit's actually kind of the sensitive one in the Trinity. <laughs> you know, like Jesus could take a harsh word. He doesn't hold a grudge. He'll forgive you. But if you say a word, something against the Spirit, man, that guy, that guy holds a grudge for years. It'll be over. No forgiveness there. Bitter. Sensitive. Don't say anything about the Spirit. It's not what he's talking about, right? <laughs> What I think he's saying, what I think he's getting at, if I can hopefully make some sense of this for us, is that one of these sins, one of these rejections is more fundamental than the other. That being the rejection of the Spirit. Okay, let me make sense of this and I'll, uh, let me at least try to use words and then I'll use an illustration for you to try to show you what I mean. If you reject the Spirit, you will have none of the Son. Okay. You will have none of the forgiveness that he accomplished at the cross. You will have none of the, the resurrection power that he, 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 he puts into his believers and his followers. You won't have those things. If you reject the Spirit, you will not have the Son. Not going to happen. The Spirit exists to point you to the Son. You reject the Spirit, you won't have the Son. It's kind of like a package deal. But... Here's the nuance that I would bring out. I do think that you can have the Spirit. You can have surrendered to God and the gospel. I need Jesus. I need, I want, I, I, I think you're revealing the, the gospel to me. And I think I need this. And you're open to the work of the Spirit in your life. And you experience justification. Your sins, forgiveness. You experience regeneration, being born again, the new power that comes from being <coughs> connected to Christ. But at times, you struggle. And you may even speak a word against the Son in a moment of fiery trial and difficulty. One rejection is more fundamental than another. You reject the Spirit, no way you're getting the Son, because the Spirit exists to take you to the Son. But we all know, even for we who have the Spirit, there are times where we may deny Jesus or struggle, be faithless. But what happens to Christians when they are that way? Because they have the Spirit, 
grieves within them, convicts them, reassures them of his love, leads them to repentance, faith again. That's, in many ways, what Ephesians 4.30 is getting at when Paul writes this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Did you catch that? There's assurance because you have the Holy Spirit and you've been sealed, but it's also possible to grieve him. Oh, he's there, but due to your sin, due to your faithlessness, due to the struggles that you're having or the fear of man, he is grieving. And when he grieves, he convicts. And he leads you away from it. He helps you grow. One is more fundamental than the other. You have the spirit. You will ultimately be forgiven. You're sealed. He's with you. Even if momentarily you lapse on that struggle. I said I'd give you an illustration. Surely some of you are thinking of Peter at this point. But here might be where I would hold out for you both Peter and Judas and the difference between them. Okay. So if you know your Bible, then you know the story of Peter. Uh, even if you don't know your Bible, you've gone to service twice a year on Christmas and Easter. You've probably heard about Peter's denials and things. You know that he, he you know, when, when persecution was coming to Peter, he said, Ah, I never knew the man. <laughs> don't hurt me. <laughs> Uncle, <laughs> I don't know. He denied Jesus before men. Now, The text that I read, at least in the version I read, says, Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will will deny you. It's over. So, is it over for Peter? No way. Peter's, in all likelihood, it seems from the scriptures, the very first person that Jesus goes to after the resurrection. I love that. Because Peter's the one who needs to be restored more than any. Not denied, but but pursued and restored. Why? Because Peter's open. He's been open. He's been open to the Holy Spirit and the influences of the Spirit through the, through the whole time walking with Jesus. You remember when he makes that profession of about Jesus and Jesus says, man, awesome job, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father. He's open to the spirit. He's wanting to walk it, but he struggles just like you and I. He stumbles and struggles. If you read the book of Galatians, you know that it actually happens again. Even after Pentecost. Paul has to confront him. It's hard, but there is fundamentally something different about him than a guy, say, like Judas. Peter is open to the Spirit. Peter ultimately receives, has the Spirit. He may grieve the Spirit, but he's sealed by the Spirit. Judas, on the other hand, was always resistant, not just to Jesus, but to the Spirit. This is why Jesus would say, even at the beginning, uh, when he was kind of selecting the 12 and things, this is why he would say of of John, uh, of um, Judas in John 6, 70, he says, did I... Uh, not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. There's nothing good about Judas. Fundamentally resistant from the start, in it for himself, looking to get something, uh, you know, in the midst of this group, hoping to gain. One of you is a devil. So you see why now that denial is more deep set. There's no forgiveness 
for those who are resisting God at a fundamental, at the deepest level. So for me, when I consider what, what is the forgivable, unforgivable sin, this idea of the Spirit, it's not some accidental words that could roll out of your mouth. You're like, oh my gosh, I just blasphemed the Spirit. It's over. It's a settled disposition of rejection, resistance and rejection of the Spirit's influence that would lead you to Jesus. You don't have the Spirit. You cannot be partaking of any of the Son's benefits. And you cannot be forgiven. I think this is actually the sort of thing that Paul is describing in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is an amazing text. It's also a bit confusing, but it's if I think we're on to it uh, in light of the text we're looking at this morning, uh, then it's, it's profoundly encouraging for people like you and I. Paul writes this, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Sounds like our text. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Did you catch that? I think he's talking about this gray area that we live a lot of times. So there are those who deny him, and it is a, it is a pronounced, uh, a settled disposition of resistance and rejection. Uh, I don't want the Holy Spirit. I don't want Jesus. I deny him in public. I deny him in private. Jesus will deny those individuals on the last day. No doubt. But then there are others of us who we have died and risen with Christ. And we are ultimately enduring and going to endure to the end. But there are times along this road where we lapse, where we struggle, where we find ourselves faithless. And the wonderful word, if you find yourself in that place now, I mean, whatever you're facing, I don't know, maybe that's where you are, is I don't have the courage to go on. I kind of feel like I'm, like Jesus is going to turn away from me because I am kind of done with him. He's saying that even when you are faithless, I will be faithful to you. I will keep. Because I can't deny myself. And I put my name, my spirit upon you. So with that, I'd move us into verses 11 and 12. And this is where we'll bring things to a close. What I want you to pick up here, really, it, it's going to kind of... Um, the verses here really just kind of tap into what we've already been talking about. But the one thing I would want to bring out in particular is uh, simply this idea of, of assurance. The assurance that we, we, uh, we have because we have the Spirit. See, that's the interesting thing. Jesus is talking about how, man, you require the Spirit. He said you better receive the Spirit. And the language just sounded kind of scary. Huh. It sounds like, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to acknowledge you. And it's, oh. You, but what you come to find out is, as we, as we open up, go, I can't do this. Help me. I need the Spirit. 
He says, I will be there for you to make sure you acknowledge me when the trials come, when the persecutions come, to make sure you acknowledge me in public. There is a resting that we can have in the spirit. There's an assurance. Similar to Ephesians 4.30, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13 and 14, In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were, there it is, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He puts his name on you when he puts his spirit in you. That's why then he will keep you to the praise of his glory. He can't deny himself. So the idea is, man, if his spirit, if you heard the gospel, you bent your knee to Jesus, go, I need that. Paul is saying you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The down payment of future inheritance, the guarantee of it, the seal. God has put his name, stamped his name on you. He owns you in the best sense of that idea. He will protect you and keep you. And that's what plays out with these disciples uh, when you read those verses. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I will be with you. Do you need to acknowledge me before men for the last day judgment to go well for you? Yes. But let me tell you something. If you've received Jesus, you've heard the gospel, the one dying on the cross for your sins, raised for new life, received, embraced, he's saying, it's not just you who embraced me. I've embraced you and I don't let go. I think I said this was the last thing I was going to bring out. There's one final thing. I lied. I actually want to do one more, uh, bring out just one more observation that I think you'll find, I hope, at least encouraging. I know I did. Um, Beyond the Spirit's empowering for witness here and other things, there's another principle that emerges in these last verses, and um, I wanted you to see it. Let me ask you a question. Have Have you ever... I ask this rhetorically because I know you're human and I know the answer is yes. Have you ever worried about the future? Yeah. <laughs> it's like funny, huh? It's funny. <laughs> Have you ever played out scenarios in your mind like it could go this way, it could go that way? What if it goes that way? Have you ever played the what if game about tomorrow? What if this will happen or that? What would I do? Will I be able to handle it? Will I walk away from God? Perhaps you uh, see, you know, awesome men and women of the faith and you see the things that they go through or like those Christians in India and all of a sudden you go, if that came for me, I don't think I'd have what it takes. There's a... Um, there's a friend of a friend that my wife has been kind of following and praying for. There's a story on Facebook where um, their their baby girl, I think three years old or something, um, out of nowhere, her heart just started failing. 
needs to have a heart transplant. They're doing all this stuff in the meantime while they're praying for a miracle or hoping for a heart. And Megan's reading to me some of these posts from this mom. And they are the most spirit-filled, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying things you could ever read. And as you're reading these things, I mean, for, well, for one thing, people are seeing this. They're praying all over the world. Now, it has spread this story. And people are telling you, we are coming back to Jesus because of what we are seeing here. Or Now, I am. people are coming to faith because of this woman's response in the face of this trial. And we are tempted to look at these sorts of stories, these sorts of things, and go, I could never do that. I mean, I think I'd be going, God, what is wrong? Right? God, why would you do this to me? We'd be shaking our fists. We wouldn't be good witnesses. We'd be potentially falling away. If God is good and God is sovereign, forget it. If he's going to do this to my kid, she's lying cut open on a, on a hospital bed or an operating table, for goodness sake. We think, I don't have what it takes to be like that. And you want to know what Jesus is saying in this text? You're right, you don't. Not today, at least, because that's not what you are facing today. We play the what-if game. We go into the future, and we think about all these scenarios, and we try to prepare ourselves. And what he's telling his disciples is, is listen, persecution's going to come, and it's going to be horrible. But Jesus He's a horrible counselor. This is so, I, I would get kicked out of the, the room if I tried to say this to somebody in the same sentence as you're about to die. Don't worry about it. That's what he says. Don't be anxious. You're, you're going to be dragged. Life's going to be horrible. Don't be anxious. Why? When you need the help, it will be there. In that very hour, he says, or as the, uh, the NET Bible translates it, in that very moment, the moment you need it, the Spirit will be there to give you the boldness and the courage. You can't conjure it up in advance or figure out your way around it. Don't worry. When you need me, I will be there. I just thought, man, isn't that? There's the principle for us. And it's very similar to what you see in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 34, where Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So oftentimes the burdens that we carry are, are, are made so much worse because we actually bring in all sorts of things from the future. And we lay those on ourselves and say, I'm not sure I can, oh, what if this uh, and he's saying, listen, today has enough trouble for you. You just focus right now on calling on the Spirit. The Spirit's here to help you for what you're dealing with, with what you're dealing with today. He will get you through what you're dealing with today, however big or small. But it's not as glamorous as that. And what if that were to... If he has that for you, then he has the grace for you as well. And the Spirit's enabling will be there when you need it. In fact, this is where I'll leave you. If you want to prepare for that day, here's how you do it. You focus on what you have in front of you today, and you, and you, and you rest in him now with that. That will prepare. You start to grow in reliance in what you're currently facing, and you will find that you, have, you will be ready when that day comes to call on God and find grace in the time of need in those moments as well. Let's pray. God, we openly admit in this place that we are not... Um, 
<laughs> like I remember my buddy Tolu saying, we are not the stuff of legends. <laughs> we do not have what it takes to persevere or to acknowledge you boldly in uh, public before others. We are scared. We want to save our own skin. We want other people to like us. Uh, but Jesus, by your spirit, I pray that you would come and, and, and help us to want you to like us and be pleased with us more. <laughs> help us to live our lives in such a way that we would bring you honor so that whether people like us or not, we want to love you and love them in a way that they might not even need, they know they need to be loved. Help us to acknowledge you. Help us not to hide you. Help us to be ambassadors for you. Holy Spirit, come. Stir us up. Give us the ability that we don't have in ourselves. In Jesus' name.